There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Startup Nightmares. Startup Nightmares is a podcast that aims to inspire those who work in the startup world to do the best work they can, the best way possible, while dodging some bullets doing so. Let's just be a bit more human here. All of these people started needing stuff from me. Don't feel like you're on your own because you're, you're never on your own. But I'm paying this person a good wage. Why isn't that enough? And that doesn't make me special. What is making me special is my deeper story. People need a sense of purpose to feel motivated in their job. Wake up at five in the morning and like go to the gym for an hour. Like, what the fuck is that? You're sitting at your desk crying and you're like, what happened? I had no idea how to monetize anything. I was like, ah, everybody gets a title. You get a title, you get a title. Either pay me or I will sue you. All of our guests have been to the dark side of the innovation ecosystem and came back to tell their tale. You can use this. This is how you get there. It is not a secret anymore. My name is Tal Shmueli, and I will be your host. Stavez, welcome to the show. Tal Shmueli, so happy to be here. <laughs> so let's take it from the beginning. Who are you? What do you do? And why do you do it? So I'm Stav. I like to call myself a social entrepreneur, although maybe I'm not for the past couple of years, but I still like it. <laughs> On day to day, I'm, a, I'm an investor. We have an incubator and a, a seed fund uh, by our crowd and Reliance Industries. It's called Labs02. And we have another branch. Uh, this is in Jerusalem, Labs02, like the code when you call someone in the old phones. And we have another branch in Beersheba, which is Labs08. Why do you do what you do? So I think that today I'm doing this because this is really what I love. I mean, I love waking up in the morning and meeting entrepreneurs and hearing their crazy ideas. And we invest in deep tech. So we really invest in like technologies of the future. And this is super exciting. Um, so I think this is why I'm doing this today. But I got there really because I think my main goal was this like huge dream of economic development And I thought that startups are the right way to go. So I got here. <laughs> so a lot of people's day-to-day -day is lived in the present or in the near future. Some people's lives are lived in the past. Fair enough. But you live in five to ten years' time as an investor, as an investor who's doing deep tech, as an investor who's doing deep tech and connecting the academy to the private sector. What does it feel like to be living in the future? Uh... <laughs> 
<laughs> I love this question. <laughs> From my eyes, the future is super pink and it's great and it's amazing. Um, however, we didn't like we didn't expect any of what's going on, I think, in the present with pandemics and, and things like that that change everything. Um, so the world I'm living in is more of a better world, a, a more connected, um, that can really solve like big issues that we're going to experience in the future. We're here to make sure that we can deal with it when it comes. Our world is obsessed with the current, with the pressing, with the burning matters, with the politics. How do you manage to get people's attention and focus on something that is unpredictable and is somewhere in the future? Again, not 100% of our companies are solving the problem of the future and, and it's very diverse and we have companies that are solving problems today. It's just important to say. But I think for the companies who are solving the problem of the future, so I will divide it into two. One is problems that we're pretty sure we're going to, uh, to encounter. So for example, we invested in a company that does quantum encryption. The main problem is going to be when there are quantum computers, right? So we're starting to see the problems now and computers are getting stronger, but really the problem is in the future. And we have no idea where we're going to have quantum computers, but once we do, it's going to be really amazing on the one hand, because it's going to help like uh, accelerate medicine and really good things like that, but all the data Like think about your medical records, like all the data that you have today and is encrypted with mathematics, that's basically dead. So we know that this is a futuristic problem. We know that governments and really big corporates are considering this problem at the moment, even though it's futuristic because it's going to take time. It's going to take years to make sure you have the right solution and it's affordable. We're investing now, but in something that we know for sure that will be a problem in the future. We just don't know when. I think that this, this is one category. I think that the other category is really not preventive, but maybe uh, technology that will make our life better. So one example I can give is that we invested in a company that does uh, brain-computer interface. So Brain-computer interface. Yeah. In a non-invasive way. So it's important to say. Elon Musk, for example, he has a company that does brain-computer interface, only it's invasive. He puts electrodes within your head. One electrode, okay, two are, is going to kill you. So we're talking about non-invasive ones. And basically what we're saying is that we're already connecting with devices, right? So we're going to make this communication better. So you can uh, control, control your devices better. By the way, you're going to actually enhance your brain abilities. So at the moment, our communication, the way we operate, our motor skills when it comes to devices is not that good. We're making a lot of mistakes. So we're investing in technology that actually can understand your mistakes before it ever happens, correct it. And by that, your brain, it gets to a point where, which is called better than expected. He thinks he's going to make a mistake. It doesn't happen. He releases dopamine. And then you learn from it. So that means that you're more, most likely won't make the same mistake again. So that means that the way you're connecting, communicating with machines is going to be better. This is today, every small market, we don't understand it. We barely understand the brain. Like we, we understand our body pretty well from the scientific uh, perspective and, and, and medical perspective. Um, not the brain. 
I think maybe it's easier to start like w- with a machine and then go to maybe brain to brain, but for sure. Before you became an investor and, and started charting this uncharted territory, how did you get your first breakthrough professionally? What was it? The point where you can say, this is where my career started. Second, I was like this social entrepreneur for years and I, I did like so many things and trying to connect like ultra orthodox and secular people and left and right wing and um, Arabs and Jews and stuff like that. Like I had all these uh, social initiatives. I think that at the beginning of my career, I was sure I was gonna be, going to become uh, the CEO of the transportation ministry. That, that was the goal? That was my goal. Is it still? No. Okay. <laughs> That's a, that's a funny dream. People want to be an astronaut, a model, uh, Mark Zuckerberg. No, I want to be the, the I want to, I want to manage the transportation authority's office. Yeah. First of all, it impacts your, your life. The fact that you're sitting at your car for so many hours in traffic. Our public transportation is a mess. It's you're saying it's efficient. a mess. I say it doesn't exist, but. So it's not efficient. People don't use it. So basically, and I think it's really like, uh, um, I know, I think it's a big part of, of the world. It's part of the fabric of our society. And when you think of like uh, cities like London, the tube, the underground, like, like the way the underground runs makes or breaks your day. You cannot travel the distances you need to in order to get to work if that service isn't operating the right way. It's such a fundamental pillar of people's lives. Here, we find ways around it. Either we don't go anywhere or we live close to our family Or, you know, in Tel Aviv, if it's not a walking distance, like a short walking distance, it's hot and it's humid. If I have to go more than 10 minutes, it's far away. I'll think twice about going, uh, yeah. going someplace. Kind of like it is in cold countries where you have to have a shop every other block because otherwise you just won't go. Yeah. So think about we're such a small country and still everything happens like in this couple of square meters, right? If you really had a better transportation, people could go and live like in the south and up north. You don't really have to to be like in the in the same quarter. So I think it has like a huge impact on people's lives. So that that was a dream. I think I can help and improve people's lives today with technology. So uh, I did a detour. So while I had this dream of becoming the CEO of the the transportation ministry, I, 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 um, I actually lived in, in Tel Aviv at the same time. I moved to Tel Aviv because I worked here, but I, I, still, I, I still studied at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. I was, uh, I think, uh, my BA in the PPE, in the philosophy, political science, and economics. And I thought that the biggest problem for young people in Jerusalem is employment. Basically, if you need a job, you're more likely to get one in, in Tel Aviv. I remember, I think I was like 24, 25, something like that. And we already had a couple of exits from back home, from my computer class, from back home, uh, from my high school. And I realized that I don't know anyone in Jerusalem that is talking about startups. Like, even students for computer science, you talk, no one, no one's talking about it. You go on the street in, in Tel Aviv and everybody is talking about startups, right? Like, they have an idea and they're working on it and they just raised money and... And all the newspapers, the, the economic newspapers, they're all like for Startup Nation. And it didn't happen in Jerusalem. And I thought, and I started looking into it and realized that basically startups are really the way, they're the best tool for economic development. I went back to, uh, to Jerusalem. I, I moved back. 
I quit my job. I, I worked the uh, Israeli uh, Union students, National Union of Israeli Students. This is how it's called. Mm-hmm. So I worked a lot like with the, with the student unions. So when um, I thought that students are the place to go. The CEO of the student union at the Hebrew University was uh, Yudah Bezalel, and he's this amazing person and super visionary. And we, we built like the vision for the first entrepreneurship center in Jerusalem. And because I don't believe that you can really build something, it doesn't matter if it's a center or, or startup, I still think that you can do it alone. You have like to have a team with you. In Balziv joined me, which is one of the most amazing people and partners that I ever had. And we basically started Siftak, which was called Siftak at the beginning. Siftak um, is a slang for... In Arabic, yeah, for like the beginning. If you're... Um, if you're If you sell something like in a shop, so the first thing you're going to sell in the morning is like your siftah. That's what kind of like sets the tone. Yeah. So we started Siftak. It was like the first accelerator program in Jerusalem. And uh, we did events and courses. And it was pretty cool because we actually started to build an ecosystem from the bottom up, which is very uncommon. If you look, look at the ecosystems around the world, if you look at Tel Aviv, if you look at Silicon Valley, if you look at Paris, okay, for example, all of these are very organic ecosystems. They happened. It wasn't like someone waking up in the morning saying, okay, I want to build an ecosystem. In that sense, I think it was pretty unique. I think that the unique thing about Jerusalem is that it has talent and it has serial entrepreneurs and investors that most of them, like 99%, worked in um, Herzliya or Tel Aviv, but lived in Jerusalem. And sometimes their heart was also in Jerusalem. Their heart is in Jerusalem. I mean, I, I didn't have anything to offer them, right? Beside a dream. First of all, I think that they believed in Jerusalem. I think that they wanted to see her gr- grow. I think that they want, this is the future that they want for their children that they raise in Jerusalem. I remember when in my first conversation with JVP, so they told us, listen, Tons of people have tried. It really never like happened. We think that the problem is that there's no entrepreneurs in Jerusalem. So if you come back to us with like 10 people that has an idea for a company, for a startup, we'll help you. Like we'll, we'll, start, uh, like, we'll start to build the program. JVP, Jerusalem, Jerusalem Venture Partners, one of the biggest players yeah. uh, that's operating out of Jerusalem. And even they who are in the, in the financing business of new ventures, said there were skeptics about it. People have tried, didn't work. We need to see some sort of a product market fit, if you will, some prototype of people wanting to come in and start their ventures here. And this was your challenge. This was your homework from that meeting. Yeah. So basically, I knew nothing. We posted like a Google form saying like, if you're in Jerusalem and you have an idea, but uh, uh, so, so enroll. If I want to be honest, we, we decided that we're going to be more ambitious than just bring 10 people with ideas. So it had to be technological ideas. They had to be a team. They, have, they had to have the ability to execute. I mean, it, doesn't, it, it wasn't enough if someone from like social science came and like, I have an idea to build something that is technological. You have to have like some, someone on your team that can actually develop the product. So we posted this and we got back to JVP. I think it was a week later. With 80 teams, with 80 ideas of my teams that can execute with technological ideas, we came to them like with the, I remember like with the Excel sheet, like, okay, what's now? 
and I really remember like looking at, and they were looking at me I'm like, okay, now we need to get to work. We started really at like on March 12, uh, 2012. And I think the first cohort was already uh, on uh, June. We made so many mistakes. Today, it's embarrassing, right? I think the unique thing is that both JVP and Ellie Wardman and you know, like all the people that, that were our mentors, they knew that we're making mistakes in how we built the program. But they also knew that we're, uh, that we need to learn and that we're open to change. We think that you have to change like all the time. You have to be super, like you have to listen all the time to, to, to what's going on. So they let us, like they let us make the mistakes. And once we understood it, we came up like, okay, so this is not working. What should we do? And, and they, they didn't right away give us the answers. Like they really went with us to the process where we need to come up with ideas from like on our own and, and do the changes. They were there like to give us feedback, to help guide us, but never really to tell us like, okay, you need to do one, two, three. And I really appreciate it. What's a mistake? Give us a few examples <clears throat> to kind of paint the picture of what things you did like wrong. Mistakes that we did. So we have a couple of them. So we understood how important it is uh, to have mentors, right? Like you're an early stage company, specifically in a, in a city where you don't have an ecosystem yet. You have to have like a mentor, someone to, that can guide you. So we thought that we can just sit back, relax, say, huh, this mentor go, goes well with this company. Voila. So that doesn't work. Like this is really not understanding people. People need to choose each other. So after we understood that that doesn't work, so we let the mentors basically choose the companies for the second cohort. And like, you're going to choose someone that you want to mentor. Not going to work either, right? Because again, this is a two-way street. And mentor is like, for, for someone to become a, a good mentor, someone needs to choose him as a mentor. Someone needs to listen to him. So only on the third cohort, we understood that this is something that needs to be like a choice of, of like both parties. A two-way parties. street. Yeah. So we completely changed it into something we called the buffet. So that means that you don't have like a mentor. Now you have like office hours with everybody. Like we brought over a hundred mentors. You can choose whoever you want to meet with. And in this meeting, you, you as the entrepreneur, you need to convince him that he should be your personal mentor, not like beyond the office hours. So this is on you. This means that you have to decide that this is the person that you want to work with and the other person needs to accept and, 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 and decide that he's going to give you his time. But you have like numerous opportunities and, and this is a, a two-way street. It's funny how, how such a fundamental pillar of the program, which is mentorship, yeah. was you got it wrong twice before you got it right. Yep. And mentorship, for those who have never been engaged in such a, in such a way... Does the, does the passive mentorship, the people you call when you need something specific, a contract, a decision, whatever. But there is the active process of being mentored. And that's something very delicate because the ask is, could be quite substantial. An hour a week, two hours a week, you know, a day a month. Intimacy, like real intimacy. It's not a consultant. It's something deeper right and you managed to finally offer that to the people who go into the program and by the way i make i made mistakes that my mentors did not do with me right i thought that i can do something for other like i can make a choice for someone else and that's not how it works you need to give like all the options all the possibilities you need to to have to be a facilitator basically 
And um, the thing is, my partner at, uh, at Love Zoo 2, Moshe, he has this saying that he's always telling me and I'm still struggling to, to and I know he's right, I'm still struggling to, to, to do it. But he's telling me that if I'm worried, the other person won't. So if I'm on the board of a company and I'm worried about something instead of the CEO, so he's not going to be worried. I have you. You're going to worry about it, right? Because you, if, if you're worrying, you can't sit down and not do anything. So I worried instead of the entrepreneurs. So instead of them going and really recruiting their mentors, I did it for them. So they lay back. They didn't worry. They didn't do anything, but they didn't progress as well. So if you take on the anxiety of solving a different a, a situation of some sort, then you're taking it away from the person who actually should be solving yeah. it. I was in a, in a meeting with Esther Perel, the uh, psychologist, a few years ago, and she asked the listeners to ask themselves, she goes, were you raised for loyalty or were you raised for independence? Wow. And when you're describing that very clinical business situation, it's exactly that. Are you, are you working with your entrepreneurs and you're getting them used to for independence, as in you worry about it, you solve it, or for loyalty? Don't worry about it. I'll solve it, which creates a dependency. Yeah. That's so subtle and clever. Yeah. So since the moment you enter Jerusalem with this uh, mm-hmm. notion of, of creating an ecosystem and until today, how long has it been? Eight years. And how did the Jerusalem ecosystem change over those eight years? Well, it completely changed. So first of all, We closed down Siftak three months ago, exactly at uh, the eighth yeah. birthday. And the amazing thing is that everything we wrote as a goal on March 2012 occurred. So it's, it's pretty unique to tell like, investors that invested in the NGO, tell them, thank you so much. We're not going to ask you for more money because your money made the impact. It was... supposed to do it was supposed to do yeah it's pretty nice closure so uh our first supporter was amazing 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 fund named lishtag uh from san diego sherlene seedle and i still remember like the first meeting with her uh my grandmother just passed away and i came from like the the shiva to meet with her because it was super important to me And like she decided she's going to support us like in, in this same meeting and she supported us if ever since even before, after we, we left both in Bar and I remember the, the conversation that I had with her like saying like okay we done it we've done it our sentence when we went to people to tell them about our vision was to develop Jerusalem economy through elevating the young educated creative population of the city so today if I'm going to a meetup I'm not going to a meetup you know <laughs> even if I'm going to a zoom meeting a zoom meetup I don't know anyone I think that for the first year in Jerusalem we were able to build like an ecosystem it was still small and every time we went we, we saw the same people I could tell you like the names of each and every person and today I don't know any of them so they don't need any NGO. It's an ecosystem like any other that is growing organically today. It still has like the Made in Jerusalem, which is the community. And this is really the secret sauce of, uh, of why the ecosystem was able to develop so successfully. I think that today you don't need an NGO that its entire process is, is to make people think that they can become an entrepreneurs. 
that if they have an idea, they don't have to pack their bags and move to Tel Aviv. Like, I think that this is already a state of mind of people in the city. Are you still as connected to it as you were back then? Honestly, not so much. The fact that it has a life of its own is a really good thing in, in my eyes. I was really afraid that after we're going to go out and do other things, this is going to break. And it didn't. So that means that you have a new generation of people that saw what's happening, decided that that's good. I want to be a part of it. I want to lead this. And they made a choice and they didn't fall apart. What do you attribute the success of, of that specific initiative endeavor? Because it's very easy to be at the center of things and being the generator and the engine of it. But it's a different thing completely to build a mechanism or an ecosystem that lives even after you depart from it. So what did you do in order to make that happen? So it's not me, first of all. It's, it's really important to say, I told you, I don't think that you can do any, any kind of journey from this sort on your own. So it's a group of people and some of them are more like connected, some of them are less. But I think that, um, what did you do right? It's funny if That's I ask a good question. what you got no. wrong, it'll be like very easy. <laughs> I think one of my best qualities is that I really, I don't have ego. So even living, deciding to leave SIFTEC, for example, after uh, uh, just more than a year to go and build JNext, I was okay with it. Like I know how to release and, and let people like take over. It was my baby, right? It was my, my startup, but, but I'm okay with like, going to the next thing and Oded who replaced me which is amazing Oded Barel he did so, so such a better job than I did with Siftech he did a lot of things differently and he talked to me about it and he let me know and, and I was like still on the board but first of all like, he never asked me yes or no which is good and I never told him if it's right or wrong so I think this is maybe a part of it to know how to to like to take a step back And, and release because people who are trying to hang on even if they're not like at the center from my perspective it's bound to fail tell me a little bit about your process of investing what do you do in labs o2 and how did your past experiences inform your practices today so we invest very very early so I love it because that means that I'm meeting people and I'm hearing their dreams and I'm not hearing their numbers and Instead of like sitting down and looking at an Excel sheet and a, okay, so this is how many customers they have. This is how much they pay. Okay. That makes sense. Let's invest. No. So I look at people and I see the spark in their eyes. I get to become like a part of their journey, which is amazing as to how we invest. So again, I, I want to divide it into two. So there's companies that come to us. There's already a team and uh, they know exactly what they want to do. And we, we look at, at a startup and we're trying to think if, if it's a good team that can deliver, very similar to other VCs. And I think that the other path that we're taking is more of venture creation com- companies. We have an agreement of design partnership with the Hebrew University. We're meeting basically researchers. So a lot of the time, they're not sure really what it is that they can do with the technology. So you're really like, getting into this with them and you're helping to build the teams and you're helping to understand what the hell you can do with this technology. So you have probably an amazing technology or maybe a research that can become a technology one day, but 
what the hell you can do with it? That's a question. It's an open question. So let me park here just for one second, because I think that's critical. When, when VCs are looking for talents, they go either the intelligence units in the army. They go into certain companies who are known to foster innovation. Um, they find those hubs. And where you go is the Hebrew University, so the academy. The university's main purpose is to promote research. And sometimes it's very self-serving. They promote research for the sake of research. And you're saying, maybe we can take some of the ideas that are living there and make them viable and import them into the private sector. Yeah, I think that, I think that there is a bit of a change in the past couple of years. And I think the professors themselves, they also want to become entrepreneurs. Uh, and I think it's part of the impact of people like uh, Professor Amnon Shashua that came from the Hebrew University and built Mobileye. He's still a professor from the university. So I, none of the professors wants to become full-time entrepreneurs, right? They love their job. They love their research. However, if you can take what they did at research and build it into a company and they can become advisors and give it like one day per week, That's amazing for them. What are some of the hurdles that come between taking intellectual property from the university and then using it in the private sector? So I think that there, there, there's a couple. The first one is the funding. So I think that most of the VCs and uh, private investors you're going to talk to are going to tell you that they're not going to invest in an idea from the academy. I mean, if a startup has 90% uh, chance of failing... Here you have 50% of the research if you're trying to, to, to take it into the real world for it to not work. So this is even before it became a company. So there's a huge risk in even trying to see if something that worked within the lab is going to work in the real world. However, if it does, then private investors and VCs are going to be super uh, interested Because it means that they have like strong IP and that it's going to take years like to, to try and like close the gap. Uh, but there's this gap from the idea into just really trying to understand if it works. So this is the funding gap. The second gap is that what I said before, the professors, they're not entrepreneurs. They're researchers, they're professors. They'll be all right probably with advising and, and like being part and, 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 continue like with research and, and a lot of this, but they're not an entrepreneurs. You won't see them like becoming the CEO of the company and leaving everything behind. And this is only the only thing that they're focused on. So that means that you need to build a team. And the question is also who is going to build a team. And like I told you from the mentorship at the beginning, that's a problem. How do you build a team in a right way? So not only do they need to have like the, the, the right uh, education, maybe the right background, they need to be able to deliver. They need to connect. They need to be able to, to become a team. You're talking about really building a team from scratch. It's not like recruiting a person. It's like marriage. And think about the fact that probably if you ask most of the VCs and what they do is teams are coming to them, right? And pitch. The first question probably is going to be about the team. And what did you do? And how did you meet? It's a part of your story. It's a part of your way to evaluate if it's going to succeed or not. So the team building is, is, is an issue here and should be uh, addressed very carefully. Also because when you think of where these people spend most of their time, it's either in professional conventions or researching. So they're limited to people who are highly skilled at the same type of a sector. And there's not a lot of uh, proliferation 
in between them. They've made their names in being hyper, hyper specific. And when we're thinking of a company's success, we need diversity, we need a few disciplines, we need a variety of ages and perspectives. And sometimes, more often than not, you cannot find it in a lab. Exactly. The third thing is, what the hell do you do with the technology? <laughs> because you're not, because the ownership is technology. split. No, you have a technology, but what do you do with, her, with it? Usually, uh, research, uh, technology that is, is out of research has so many things that you can do there, so many markets you can take it to. And you need to understand, like, what's the best way? So let's take, for example, like the, the quantum encryption company we talked about. I actually wrote a note for you to explain quantum encryption, but we can do it after. So let's just talk about it. Okay, you're talking about quantum encryption. Okay, but where, when, how, why? There's so many questions here. We went through, we're like, who is the team? We started thinking about like, they have one competitor and he's selling to banks. Is banks the relevant uh, market to go to? Or is it data centers? Or is it 5G? It's a big step that you need to take and someone needs to lead this. And usually it's not, um, it's not a process that the VC is doing with you, right? Usually you're coming to the VC, you're telling him, I'm Tal, this is my partners, this is how we met. This is my company. This is where I'm going with my company. This is the research that I've been doing. And they're going to say, okay, I relate or I don't. They can tell you, listen, we think that you need, maybe you need to think about pivoting a bit or, and stuff like that. But they're not really going to go through the process fully understanding your opportunities and what the benefits and, and how you're going to do it and when and, and why. Let me try and think about it from in, in tagging to what we said in previous episodes. A lot of VCs qualify the startups by asking them, so what problem are you trying to solve? Oh, I'm trying to solve the problem of, a, of a dog owners who are not at home and they want to do- walk their dogs, so there's an app for that now. Okay, fine, we can quantify the market, put it into, a, see how much are people willing to pay for it, and assess the feasibility and profitability of such an endeavor. But you're talking research for the sake of research, trying to understand something thoroughly, but not necessarily with thinking of the implications or the applications of solving that specific problem. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot of the time, they don't really know which problem they're solving. We had a we had a conversation. I think it was like a month ago, uh, with a couple of researchers from the Hebrew University, and they have like this amazing amazing technology. They have no idea which problem it solves, and this is one of the questions that we try to answer. Like during the technology, like they're not one of all companies. I I don't know if they want to be exposed or not. But, uh, but, but basically like, they came up with a technology. It's working. Like they have a prototype of something. The question is still a mystery. Like the, the problem is still a mystery. So we have a solution looking for a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Funny. So Lab02, uh, the, the venture creator, you founded it. We're three partners. Okay. Yeah. I will call it luck maybe. Basically, I, uh, I was at our crowd. Uh, I built like the, the value creation platform. It's called Connect to, to connect basically the portfolio companies with accredited investors. So maybe a word on our crowd because it's a, it's a very innovative business model, quite unique. So our crowd is basically the leading uh, uh, equity crowdfunding platform. That means that they're basically, they have a couple of hundreds of thousands of accredited investors from all over the world that invest alongside them. So they decide which company they want to invest. They invest from their own, like from our crowd's fund, and they open it up to accredited investors from all over the world. This is the most active fund in the world with over uh, 200 portfolio companies and over $1 billion committed into the platform. Accredited investor means someone that has enough capital even if he deploys it and he's, he, lose, he's, he loses it, nothing is going to go wrong. It's not going to affect his lifestyle and stuff like that. Because startups are such a risky business, they're trying basically to protect the investors. So upward investors are all accredited investors. That means that if they lose their money, that's not fun, right? But nothing will happen. So it's all accredited investors. And um, when I joined our crowd, I love to build things. I really don't like to manage things. I like to build them. So I was at Arcrowd really just to build that the platform. Basically, my way of thinking was, okay, there's like, back then there were uh, tens of thousands of, of accredited investors and they're all so talented, right? They, they people who, who build like amazing businesses all around the world. And I wanted to use them for business development for Arcrowd's portfolio companies. So I, I built a platform, it was a technological platform to, to be able to connect them like with one click and, and let like, the CEO of the portfolio companies tap into Arcrow's network. And then, uh, so we launched this at Arcrow Summit in uh, 2017. Uh, it was February 16th. I know that because the day after I gave birth. <laughs> <laughs> so you were on the event, even though you were ninth month, nine months in and ready to deliver. Yeah. So I had backup in case I, w- I wouldn't make it. And I remember John, like in the opening uh, of the summit, he's like, 
you you should stay tuned. We might have like a birth on stage because I was like the last speaker of the day. <laughs> so I finished like, okay, I'm going to give birth. Thank you, everybody. Like, <laughs> and I actually, I love my, my maternity leaves. I have, I have two girls, so two maternity leaves. And because I think it's an amazing, amazing time to really think about what it is that, you're, that you want to do next. So I don't think it happens a lot in your life where you have like this halt, this, this pause that is like, okay, by society where everybody's like, okay, take your time. I'm like, I'm going to take this time and think what I, what I want to build next. When you're in between jobs, then, then there's an expectation that you'll be interviewing, you'll be doing stuff. Yeah, and you're people, nervous. And you're nervous. You're nervous. Like, I'm not sure what's gonna do, what I'm going to do next. And if I'm going to get in, I'm not going to get in. Here, you're not nervous about anything. Like you have this time to really contemplate on what it is that you want to do. Every time you came back from maternity leave, you did the life change. Yeah. So actually the idea of what I wanted to do, and, and it's actually what we're doing today at Labs with the venture creation. This is uh, what I decided I wanted to do with Carmez, with the, the older head maternity leave. I just, I decided this is what I wanted to do. I just still didn't have the resources. And I didn't do the research. It was basically an idea on, on, on the maternity leave is Carmel. I understood that if I want to do economic development, the way to do it is through um, building companies based on academic institutions, IP, because just take mobile life for an example. Okay. Just an example, but uh, I can give you the numbers later. You have a professor from the university, right? And he lives next, uh, next by. So he wants to build a company next to the place he works at. And he's a professor. That means that he has students and he has doctorates. And he wants the ones that are going to go to the industry, he wants them to go to his company. And while they're students and doctors, they usually live right next to the university. So basically, you have a much better percentage of to have companies be based in periphery if they're spun out of academic institution. Just to give you an example, 75% of the companies that were spun out of academic institutions stayed in the geographic location of the academic institution. And that wasn't the statistics for Jerusalem, right? Like, even if you build a company, you would move. Uh, so I thought that the best way to have like economic development, not only for Jerusalem, but I thought about like the Negev and the Galil, like North and the South. I thought that this is the best way to, to do it. And I wanted to, to build like a methodology around it. So that I, the idea started with Carmel maternity leave. And this is what I, in, with Yerden's maternity leave, I decided that this is it and this is what I'm going to do. I remember during the maternity leave that I went uh, to the chief scientist office and uh, I told him, okay, so there's a problem and we don't have enough startups that are coming out of the university and I want to do this and that. And here's the model that I built. So you're saying that after Carmel's maternity leave, you realized you have a good idea. It needs testing. After your dance maternity leave, you wanted to go out and execute that idea. And you wanted to build a methodology of how do I take the IP from the academic institutions and bring it on to the private sector. Yeah. And as you know, I don't know anything alone. I worked with Marav Cohen. She's now uh, the Minister of Social Affairs. And uh, we, start, we started to build like the methodology. One of the things that we realized is what we talked about with the funding issue, that private investors are not going to invest in the state where you just need to grab the idea from the university and turn it into something, like into an MVP. Uh, so we said, okay, so if there's a, a funding gap, let's go to the 
states, right, to the government. So we uh, we had a couple of meetings with the chief scientist officer, chief scientist office, and we talked we talked to them about the problem, and they said like, yeah, we're try like we're doing quite a lot of things to do it, but listen, we're not going to do a pilot with you, right? There's things called incubators. We're funding incubators. Why not do it through an incubator? Like, huh? Yeah, that's that's a good idea. Basically, don't reinvent the wheel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, specifically when you're working with the government, don't reinvent the wheel. So you went around and um, we basically spoke to a couple of incubators. We wanted to do a pilot with an incubator, like building an incubator was the dream, but uh, we didn't think that uh, this is doable uh, at this time. Uh, we got mainly no's from incubators. I think that the reasons were the reasons we talked about, like either they don't want to waste their time on team building and venture creation or they don't work with the TTOs, the technology transfer organizations of the, of the universities, just because it's a lot of bureaucracy. Uh, but then like all the stars aligned and then uh, uh, JVP, they had uh, an incubator in Jerusalem and they decided to, uh, to forego it and not to proceed with it and proceed only with their incubator in Be'er Sheva. There you go. <laughs> you needed a new incubator <laughs> in Jerusalem, which is for me was uh, uh, basically perfect. John wanted to start like uh, a network of incubators and John, John Madved, sorry, the CEO and founder of uh, our crowd. And he knew that he knew my dream and he knew what I wanted to do. And this is how Labs02 started. And we're three partners, uh, uh, Ofer Dao, which uh, came from JVP Incubator. And uh, Moshe Reines, which is, uh, he's a serial entrepreneur, like this still uh, uh, executive and it's really like the, the visionary and, and the, the man who actually had his hands with all uh, these startups. We basically changed a bit, changed a bit the model uh, of incubators. First of all, we have a fund in addition to the incubator. So we can do uh, more investment that uh, the minimum amount. So a lot of the time when you talk to people uh, about incubators in Israel, so they know that uh, about like this 85-15%, that the government is putting 85% and the incubator puts 15% of the cash. But it's actually the maximum amount the government is going to put. So there's no limit as to how much money you can put in the company. So you don't have to stay with the minimum amount. You can change a model. You can bring additional funding. And for us, it was super crucial because you're talking about deep tech companies and companies... Specifically, if companies are spun out of universities, they're going to need time and funding. The 600K, where, where a lot of the incubators invest for the kind of company that we wanted to invest in, it wasn't enough. So we changed a bit the model. And we started with the model of investing, instead of the 600K, $1.2 million. But then Ophel, which is really brilliant, he came up with additional thing for, for the model. So it's not only that we're going to put the $1.2 million, we're going to enable basically the founders to bring additional funding from other investors that will only dilute us. So it doesn't matter if you're going to have around $1.2 million, $1.5 or $1.95, it's going to be for the same equity. From our perspective, first of all, the company has more money. The risk is from uh, is distributed, is distributed from, on a couple of investors, and we think that investors brings value. So you bring additional investors, they bring additional value. The buy-in, the connections, the potential customers, exactly. the advice. So uh, that's what we've been doing for the past two and a half uh, years. 
in a regular VC's world, uh, you're presented with a technology of some sort or an industry of some sort, and you go and you explore it. What is going on in the world? What are the trends? What does the research say? And so on and so forth. But you're dealing with highly experimental stages of companies like quantum encryption. There is so little written and practically nothing was done. So how do you help yourself qualify these companies and choose them? So I think that I don't qualify the technology. We did speak to a quantum uh, physicist, but I have to say that the main due diligence that we made was on the people and if they're the right people to do it. So my question was not, is he doing this right? Because I'm not sure that anyone can answer this question. But if anyone in the world can actually build this, is he the right person for the job? That's a very, very funny way of going about it because it's not how you usually go about it. You'll pick a winning horse out of a few and you're saying, I have one. I just need to figure out, does he have a, st- a chance to win? Exactly. Fascinating. Yeah, I'm, I'm just saying that there's a couple of people that maybe are able to, to, uh, to check their work after it happens. But at the moment, I have research. I have like this genius that thinks he can build something, right? So again, it's, it's, it's a startup. There's like so little people in the world. Like Google said that there's a, a couple of hundreds of people in the entire world that can understand actually quantum physics and nonetheless build it into a product. So he's one of these few. The only question really I can ask is, are you the right person for the job or not? You didn't let becoming a mother slow you down. You refused to even acknowledge it's a possibility. Yeah. So <laughs> how do you go about, you know, raising two girls, but also living a pretty fast-paced life? So I can only, only talk about my experience. And I know that um, it's really important for me that no one would feel that they're doing something wrong because they make like different decisions or anything else. And I know that it's not the right lifestyle for, for anyone else. First of all, I saw my kids as entering my world instead of me entering their world. So I never uh, stopped to think, wait, this is her nap time. I'm going to stay at home. I'm not going to go there. She's going to come with me and she's going to sleep, whether it's within a conference, brainstorming with a, a couple of, of entrepreneurs. So uh, I just put like this decor on, on, a, on a table and she slept there. They joined me in my, in my journey. And I remember I was asked to give a lecture in front of students. And uh, um, so I took her with me. So I started and I asked the class, like, is there any parents here? Like one raised his hand, like, okay, so that's, <laughs> now that's yours. <laughs> I need you to babysit for me while I speak. I had like a plan B. I think the biggest thing about here is, first of all, the, the, my view of them joining me in my journey. And this is, by the way, how I, I, how I view them today also. So I really, even though they're only five and three, I, I speak to them as, as adults. So if I have something I'm contemplating about or anything, like I want to hear what they're, what they're thinking, thinking. And I don't want to make decisions for them. They're, they need to be part of the, like, the decision making, even though they're like super young. But I think that the, the main thing that enables all of this is, is basically my spouse, Ken. So we're 50-50 in everything. On the first maternity leave, he joined me and we were together for three months. I went back to work for uh, after three months and he stayed at home for three more months. 
and then went back to, to work and Carmel went to kindergarten. With Yerden, I took the entire three, uh, six months because I wanted to build like the, I decided I want to do like this thing with the IP and, and we started Blabzo 2 and everything. So I needed the time. So it was good for me. But as far as the days that were picking up, picking them up from kindergarten. So I have two days, he has two days and the fifth day, uh, it's my parents. So we're really looking at this as a 50-50, which gives me the balance that I want. I, I get that there's people that, that want, that, that they're saying like they're young and, and it, it goes by so fast and I want to be there for every moment. And I get that and that's good and that's fine. And I want to be there also, but not for every moment. Because I think, at least this is my view, I, I have to be the happiest. I, I have to feel fulfilled. So they'll be the same. I love the fact that they have two days that are all about them. And when I pick them up, the phone is out and I really don't care what's going on in the world. And I'm with them. For the rest of the week, I do me. I do what I love within my job. And I'm meeting friends. And I, I do make sure to, to get back home some of the, like at least like one or two nights in addition to, to my days. Uh, before they go to sleep and talk to them and hear what they had like during uh, their week. And I don't work weekends. I don't do anything on on Friday and Saturday because I'm not a brain surgeon and nothing is going to happen if I take a, a day or two and I'm with them like 100%. This is my balance and, and it's good for me. It makes me happy. My job makes me happy. I wake up and uh, I know that I'm going to meet like new people with new, really amazing uh, ideas. And I'm going to help the ones that I already chose. And that makes me super happy. And if I'm happy, they're going to be happy. Where do you think we stand in the topic of women in tech? That's harsh. Wow. We still have a long, long way to go. So many reasons, so many things that we still need to do. First of all, we don't see as many women entrepreneurs as men. Even more specifically, I don't see deep tech companies led by women. Almost none of them. I'm meeting female entrepreneurs all the time, even if it's not something that I'm going to invest in, just to see if I can help, if I can give it advice, if I can open doors. So I, I see there are women entrepreneurs, still not as many as men, but specifically at deep tech, I almost don't see them, which is really, really hard for me. Maybe some of the reason is that we're still not at the level of decision-making. So there's very, very few women, I'm talking about Israel, that are, that are in VCs and even fewer that are actually making decisions and sitting on boards. And I think that when we just started, I remember that I had an interview. Someone asked me if I'm a real partner. And I asked her, I told her that I don't understand what it means. She told me, are you making decisions? Can, can you decide to invest in a company? Will you sit on boards? I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what a partner means, right? And she's like, no, uh, never mind. And it took me a long time to understand that in this ecosystem, I, I think it's, it's more here than, than in the United States. A lot of the time you get a title, it doesn't go with the privileges. So for me, this is, this is super wrong. And I would like to see more women make decisions because the thing is that it's not 
diversity is good for a reason. When you bring in someone that thinks differently than you do, and women a lot of the time think differently than men, we have like different, we have different life, different path. So you bring in someone because you want this other point of view, right? So it's not only, it's, it's important not only to hear the other viewpoint, it's also important to act on it. So I think that we're still missing this, but there is a big change. I, I will say there's a big change. When, when I just started, I remember like trying to look for female uh, uh, entrepreneurs or, or venture capitalists to come and talk, and it was much harder to find them there and today. But I do think that we have a long, long way to go. Where should people go to learn more about you and the work you guys are doing? So we have a website, www.labs02.com. Um, or you could just email me. I'm super approachable. <laughs> It's been a pleasure having you here. It's been a pleasure. Thank you have you. nice glasses. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for representing Jerusalem the way you did. Thank you for the work you've done. They say the secret to a happy ending is knowing when to hold the credits. And I think now would be a terrific point to do that for us because the next time we meet is going to be after you have hopefully successfully bridge that gap between the academy and the private sector and you're already talking about the next big thing yeah thank you so so much for coming thank you hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 